How's everybody doing today? All right, that's what I'm talking about. Uh, hey, y'all, I'm super serious, right? I'm super serious. Uh, it's just kind of fun for me, to be 100% honest. I know that's a little bit unique, but also these chairs are a little bit farther back than they normally are, and so y'all feel so far from me right now. Um, but, uh, and then I have to stay here for the sake of that video, but if it wasn't for that video, I'd probably go down there and actually just get closer to you. However, it's just so fun, primarily because we have seen a lot of new faces recently, and that's been really exciting. I hope y'all have enjoyed a lot of the new relationships that you've been making. However, uh, man, nothing is quite, you know, like there's still this soft place in my heart uh, for like holiday end days when this was kind of the size that we regularly had. And we kind of were just like, this was who we saw on a more regular basis. And so this is kind of taking me back to that spot and it's just making me nostalgic. I just love it because I love y'all. And so, yeah, what's up? All right, good morning, all that good stuff. However, the one thing I do want to say, shout out to the ladies for organizing a ladies Bible study. Uh, yeah, hand claps for them. But then in addition to that, y'all don't know that I, uh, I y'all just say a prayer for Megan Congdon. Yes, that she would uh, continue to, to grow their baby in a healthy way and that she would give birth healthily, if that's the right word. But also because I've been low-key trying to get this woman to preach up here for like four, five, six months now. And she's been, she's been dodging me. And so I'm hoping that the leading this Bible study will just give her a little, a little nudge into doing it. Just before the service, she was like, oh, post-baby, we'll see. And so hold her to it. Hold her to it. Be like, hey, that baby's out. All right, I know it came out two days ago, but let's get it. Let's get it. All right, so, hey, what we're going to do today is we are going to kind of finish up uh, Ezra, uh, sermon series Ezra. We'll get that up there in a minute, I think. Uh, but... We're gonna go ahead and finish that up. It's kind of pseudo finishing it up because the thing is we're also gonna tap it next week when we start Advent. We're gonna do something really, really neat next week where we see Advent and, and we're gonna kind of tap Ezra. And we're gonna see how Ezra really kind of takes us in to this story of, of a coming Messiah, the expected Messiah that, that we get in the Advent season. And so today we're gonna finish up, but, but we're also gonna kind of like, also gonna, gonna leave a little section for Ezra starting next week. I've been sick this week, y'all, so God, God help me to get through, uh, get through this without going full Barry White by the end of it. Um, hey, so one of the things that I will say is that I hope you've enjoyed Ezra. Ezra tells an incredible story. It tells a story, again, of a redeeming God uh, seeing and responding to the cries of an exiled people in order to restore purpose to their lives. It's a really incredible story that, that almost seems like a bit of a microcosm of the larger story of the Bible. And so far through this book, we, we started out by seeing how, how Cyrus, the, the king of Persia, came in after taking over Babylon to say, hey, the, you know what, I, I want to go ahead and send all the Hebrew people back to the Israelites, go ahead and go back to Judah, go back to Jerusalem and build a temple for your God. And he sends all of them back. This very left field thing that happens uh, be, because we, we see and read in Ezra that God stirs his heart for it. Okay, so, so we see right from the jump that something special is happening and that God is going to produce this story where he's going to move on their behalf and he's going to bring them out of Babylon. He's going to send them back home. They're going to be restored to a purpose. That purpose is does anybody remember what that purpose is? It's worshiping God, right? So, so they're restored to the purpose of worshiping God. They construct an altar, right? They construct a temple. They start to actually worship God in this really powerful and beautiful way. 
they, they come under a little bit of pressure, but, but they unite together in order to pursue that purpose together. They're not doing it like, like individually. They're not calling on one person to come to their aid. And I think week three, we had that really cool chart up here that showed how every single one of the movements through this book is spurred on through a community of people doing it. How Ezra, uh, and Daniel talked about Ezra last week, but Ezra didn't even come into the book until chapter seven. And so the whole first three, oh, the first six chapters and the first three sermons were all hyper-focused on the community of faith walking through uh, um, what it means to be restored to this purpose of worshiping God, following him with our entire lives, and, and giving ourselves. And finally, last week, we arrived at the place where, again, the community spurs on Ezra, uh, the, this new leader that's come from Babylon recently, um, to, 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 to read the word of God and allow it to start to shape them. And so it's the community of faith, even with Ezra, that starts to spur him toward the idea of, hey, read the scriptures to us, right? Teach us the scriptures. Let, remind us of who we are. Remind us of what God's done. It's the community of faith that's been walking through this entire story, uh, really taking on uh, the, the role of, of the person that's leading the charge. There, there's not these individual, there are some individual leaders, but really they're there to support the greater community that is starting to sit under the word, that is walking in the purpose of worshiping God and is being shaped by the word now as of last week in our story. And, and now we're, we're seeing a people that have really kind of started to, started to walk in this purpose that we're talking about, right? They got the temple going, they got uh, the scriptures that are starting to guide their lives and, and really start to shape their lives. And, and now they're kind of moving forward in this way. And then we get to this unique conclusion of Ezra, which it's less a conclusion and more like a little, little intermission after this. Because uh, if you didn't know, Ezra and Nehemiah are just one big book. Um, so the book after this, Nehemiah kind of picks up on this story, just continues it on. But as we come to the, the end of Ezra's portion of this story, uh, th this, unique, this unique jump where there's a, a, a strong rejoicing that's taking place last week when Daniel uh, Cooper, right, talked about how, how really the people are being shaped by the word of God. They are, they're, they're seeking out truth in the word. They're doing that truth and they're teaching that truth to others. The community of faith is starting to, to live out this thing. Now, now, as we start to finally see them working out this truth and being, being shaped by this truth and, and there's a rejoicing happening because they're like, man, we're, we're, we're walking in this purpose. We take a sharp right turn in chapter nine where all of a sudden there's this report that goes, hey, there's a lot of intermarriage here. There's a lot of people that came and they married from the people that are from around this, this region, people that, that some of the same people that were opposing us merely a few years ago and for us a few chapters ago uh, in chapter three and in chapter four. Uh, and, and, and man, this is a serious thing. Uh, through, through the history of Israel, we, we talked about this in, in week three of this sermon series, the, the history of, of Israel was always meant to be a blessing to the world, but but it was always gonna be through displaying how God worked in a community in order to produce his character in the community and to display that character to the world, inviting them into uh, really what it means to follow God. And one of the issues that the Israelites had frequently was intermarriage. Now, it's not an ethnic or racial thing in the hands of sinful people. It honestly does become that in, in several situations. But the intention of, of preventing or stopping this intermarriage early on was just the idea that, hey, don't bring in other cultural practices. 
Don't bring in other religious practices, other spiritual practices. We want to refrain from that. If someone wants to join the community as a convert, that's one thing. But if they come in with all of their cultural religious practices, it can start to muddy what it looks like for us to follow God correctly, to love God passionately, and to love him purely. And again, display this world of what it looks like to love God, to, to or display this culture of what it looks like to love God to the rest of the world. And so when, when Ezra 9 begins, it's this step of saying, hey, there's a lot of bad things that are going on here, things that threaten our goals, things that threaten our purpose. And, and it is a very hard right turn, but, but it's an important turn. It's an important turn, friends, because it highlights a, a required and necessary uh, reality of following God. And that is the idea of repentance. Repentance. All right, that's, that's a scary word. All right, I know that right, jumping in here right away, you're like, oh, repentance. I didn't come here for that, but no, but you did. Why? Because it's a fundamental part of what it means to follow Jesus, right? Repentance. What is repentance? All, right, all y'all in here may be like, oh, I know what repentance is, but, but we're going to have people watching online and catching up with this. So, so let's define repentance a little bit, right? One of the best uh, definitions of repentance I found was from the Lexham Bible Dictionary, uh, and it was that repentance is a change of attitude and action from sin toward obedience to God. A change of attitude and action from sin toward obedience to God. Ezra 9 takes us into this, story, this part of the story where, where now people are walking in their purpose. They're worshiping God. They're loving him. They're being shaped by the word of God. And now that they're being shaped by the word of God, they're being confronted by the reality that some parts of our life don't line up with what it looks like and what it means to worship and follow God. Friend, let me, let me just lovingly tell you, if you desire to walk out the purpose that God has for you, which is to know him and to love him and to follow him and to be shaped by him and to bless the world through, being, through living and loving like him, you will be confronted with the reality at one point or another that you and your life do not line up with this vision of what God has for creation. And in those moments, repentance will be what, you, what you're hoping for. Repentance will be what you're looking for. Now, a lot of you right now are looking and being like, uh, man, repentance, that sounds like that's the opposite, right? That's what, happens, what we do when something bad happens. No, friend, repentance is actually a fundamental part of what it means and what it looks like to follow Jesus. Because repentance is acknowledging and seeing that there's something in me that does not line up with this new creation that God has for me. With this new vision of my life that God has for me. And, and lovingly saying, hey, I'm going to change my attitude. I'm going to change my actions in order to, 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 to turn from sin and toward obedience to God. That's a beautiful thing. That's a good thing. In fact, as, as we live out our purpose, we're going to see that, that it really like to, to live out our purpose of following Jesus with our entire lives, this idea of worship, right? It will require sincere repentance. It will require sincere repentance and grace-filled humility. It's going to require it. Now, hear me. That word is scary, require. Am I saying that in order to be saved, it will require Oh, 100% like, like perfect repentance when you're never sinning again. I didn't say that. I think that, that there is a certain repentance that comes with salvation, right? Faith and repentance is what leads to life in the New Testament. But, but in order to live out the full purpose that God has for us of worshiping him by following him with our whole lives, if we want to live out that purpose, bring redemption to the communities and people around us, it will require sincere repentance and it will require grace-filled humility. It will require these things. Without them, uh, you, you will be a person that God loves and that loves God but lacks fruit. 
I want to say that again. Without these two things, you will be a person that loves God, that God loves, but lacks fruit. You, you will never see the Lord working in this redemptive way to change the world and the people around you and to bring life and light and to all of a sudden be like, man, that person like made a huge impact here. You will be loved and welcomed by God at the end of your time and you will be welcomed into the grace and loving uh, reality of glory. But, but you will look back and been like, man, I wish I could have done a little bit more. And I think that will be true of us when we lack sincere repentance and grace-filled humility. I don't want to come at this too strong, but I do think it's important. So to really capture this idea, what we're going to do is we're going to work through two real quick, real quick little, little studies. All right, the first one is going to be in the area of repentance. The second one is going to be in the area of God's grace. It's that two sec, two, the, the, if you could put that up there. Uh, repentance and God's grace. We're going to work through two quick little studies of repentance and God's grace as we see them in Ezra. Now, Starting with repentance, as we, as we jump into our text today, it's a little bit tricky, okay? It's a little bit tricky because there's a lot happening here, and it's happening really fast. And again, if you're not caught up with that section, that, that kind of little history that we just mentioned where intermarriage is a bit of a, a wrong thing, and, and it's not what God is hoping for, if, we're, if you're not caught up in that, then you're going to be like, what's going on here? Like, why is this such a big deal? Again, the historical context is not that, that there was like an ethnic superiority. Again, sinful people uh, have made that into, within the Bible, I don't mean now, I mean in the Bible, like sinful people made ethnic superiority a thing. But the original intent was just to keep God's ways God's ways. So people could convert, people could come into the community and, and, and convert to, to Judaism and following God the way God had instructed during this time. But, but there was not an, a, a welcome a, a welcoming to intermarriage where, where people brought their own customs and their own spiritual beliefs and their own spiritual ways because that would muddy the waters. This is honestly what happens in, in the uh, Samaritans and the Jews. Uh, in the New Testament, we read of this great divide between the Samaritans and the Jews, and the Samaritans were once considered Jews. They were the Jews that were left behind in the northern kingdom of Israel, where the southern kingdom of Judah was taken away in the exile. And as they were taken away, they stayed together and they kept their customs and they worshiped God, quote unquote, properly. And the Samaritans stayed behind and began to marry in other cultures and brought in other religious practices. And when the, when the Jews came back from Babylon to their region, to Judah and Israel, there was this great divide between how they worship God. And so that's why, like, you, you have these examples in, in John uh, where... In John 4, right, the woman at the well where it's like, hey, you guys say we X, Y, and Z. We're supposed to worship here. We're supposed to worship there. Meanwhile, Jesus is like, hey, I'm about to make it to where people worship in spirit and in truth, and that's the main thing. Why it's all coming back to this season, these moments. Now, we can't, of course, go through every single little detail, but to get you caught up with exactly what's happening in Ezra 9 and 10, I've made for you a nerdy chart. All right, so we got a timeline of Ezra 9 and 10, a.k.a. A nerdy chart, all right? The timeline starts, let me, for you guys over here, all right? It starts out with, the, they're, they're right from the beginning in Ezra 9, 1, 2, there's a report of intermarriage, right? Someone comes up and says, hey, we got intermarriage in the camp, and this is seriously, this, is, this can devastate our plans, right? All of a sudden, we're worshiping God correctly, and, and then there's a right, kind of like hook out of nowhere where someone's starting to worship God incorrectly, and really, this is what landed us in, in our situation in the first place in a lot of ways. Right from there, you see Ezra start to mourn, right? He starts to mourn. He starts to weep. This takes place in Ezra 9, 3 through 5. From there, Ezra 9, 6 through 15 is Ezra's confession and his, his repentance, 
right? This comes with Ezra getting up and confessing and asking for forgiveness on behalf of his own uh, spirituality, but on behalf of the community as well. When we get into Ezra 10, there's another shift. First, it's Ezra mourning, but now in Ezra 10, we have this, this uh, again, the theme arises that the community starts to mourn. Right, the community starts to, to be sad and to weep and to realize the depths of what's happening and, and they start to mourn. And then the community in 10-2 starts to confess, we've done wrong, we are wrong, we have not followed the Lord's ways. And then from there, they, they, they concoct a plan and that plan is to send away all of the foreign wives and all of the foreign children. And then from there in, in 10, 18 through 44 to finish the book of Ezra, it literally lists off everyone who has a foreign marriage. They were, they were all about the shade, all right? They were all about the shade, these guys, all right? They were like, oh, we're going to tell you who was sent away. We're going to tell you who has some foreign wives and some foreign children. Now, this does require a pause. Nowhere, <clears throat> apologies, nowhere in Ezra 10, 3 through 17, does it say that God said to send away foreign wives and foreign children. Nowhere does it say that. It actually says that the community looks up and says, we got to do something about this. So why don't we send away every foreign wife and every foreign child? And Ezra seems to agree, and they send them all away. And this is one of those moments where if you're looking at, at, at this as a response to sin, you can say, there's a good intention here. There's a good motivation. And then you can look at the practice of sending away all these people, sending away what in turn becomes widows and orphans and say, but that was the wrong way of doing that. That wasn't okay. That wasn't a good thing. And I think we support that within the context of scripture by understanding that God never says in this text, send away wives and children. He doesn't say that here. He doesn't. The people say that here, motivated by their grief, motivated by their shame, motivated by uh, their, 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 what is it called? Um, being like humiliated, they respond by saying, hey, send, send everyone away. And then that's just a quick fix. And that's why this is, uh, I think, instructive and really helpful for us to, to view repentance in Ezra 9 and 10. But it's also a warning for us. Because we're going to see some positive things in repentance here. But we're also going to see some, some not positive and, and maybe less godly ideas of repentance here. And, and really, what's fun is that we can, we can tease those out by just using almost exactly what's happening here. Because here's the thing, Ezra's doing a lot more than just giving us a story of repentance. In fact, it's showing us repentance. And that's why a single verse is really hard. Because it's not just telling us a story of repentance, it's showing us what repentance looks like. In fact, if you just use kind of really some of these verses and blocks and some of this timeline, you can kind of build out steps to repentance that we have, have known theologically for a while. So if we move to that next slide. Uh, no, let's move to the, to the one, to the chart. Right, so if we, okay, sorry, so steps to repentance. Okay, so, right, we're using some of these same blocks of text here, and through them, we can honestly start to build out what it looks like to repent. And this is important, friends. It's important for us to start to get, to get familiar with what repentance looks like and seeing it happen in this story. Because if I'm being honest, a lot of us that are sitting here, myself included, right, we don't understand repentance that well. Again, I just got through saying that repentance is so scary for us because repentance sounds like the thing that you do when something bad happens, when failure happens. In fact, repentance is what happens when you're following Jesus and you realize something in you and in him doesn't correlate and you repent and you, you turn to him. 
right? You, you turn away from sin and to God. What a beautiful thing. And yet some of us are so scared of repentance, so scared of failure. And it's because we don't understand what repentance even looks like. But Ezra really builds this story and shows us repentance in an incredible way, right? If you think about what repentance is, the steps of repentance, you can see the first thing you want to think about is self-examination. And we see that in Ezra 9, 1 through 2. There has to be a self-examination for someone to come up and say, there's intermarriage. How do you know that? I saw it. I looked. I found it. No one walked up and said, hi, this is my wife. She's not an Israelite. No one did that. You had to find it. Friends, this is critical because without this, you don't know that sin is in your life. You have to think through your actions, your thoughts, your feelings, your motivations in order to understand where is sin coming from and is it present at all. And this is, this is let, let, me, let me bear with you real quick. Just bear with me, I should say. This is a step that a lot of us don't participate in when it comes to repentance. And as a result, we just get caught off guard by major sins. Because we're not examining our lives on a regular basis, because we're not examining our thoughts, our actions, our feelings, our motivations, we end up getting caught off guard and a major sinfall happens and then we think, man, this is bad. When in reality, there were clues along the way the whole time. We just didn't participate and actually look for them. I have a friend, she told me a story, I'm gonna leave names completely out of it. Uh, a friend that, that told me a story about a man she knew several years uh, prior to this conversation. And that man had been accused of abusing his daughter in, in the most vile and inappropriate of ways. And when she saw the man the next time, she, she looked at him and said, hey, I, this can't be true, right? He was like, it is, it's true. And, and she asked him, what happened? I could never imagine you like hurting your daughter in any way. And, and he said, man, I'm embarrassed, but honestly, I just said yes too much. I said yes over and over again. I said yes to every website. I said yes to every thought. I said yes to every temptation. I said yes to every fleeting moment. I said yes to every little inclination that by the time I got to the point where the wildest and most vile of, of thoughts entered my head, I no longer really knew what it meant to say no. And I said yes, like I had for months and months and months prior to that. Friend, there were clues leading up to that moment for that man as well. Just like there are clues leading up to our major falls. Self-examination is how we begin to see those moments, see those clues, Just look at your actions, your thoughts, your feelings, your motivations. From here, we go into Ezra 9, 3 through 5, and we see Ezra start to mourn. He, he cries, he rips his clothes, he starts to weep. What does this look like? It looks like coming to terms with and understand Come to terms with and understand the weight of your sin. Right? What does it look like to actually come to terms and understand the weight of what it means for your sin to be impacting your life and the life of other people? I see the absence of this in my son all the time, and I hate to be the pastor that uses his kids as a, let's be real, though, it's easy. It's really simple. It's really easy. It's not hard. It's got to look at him and be like, oh, there it is, vividly. Um, my man will hit his sister. His sister will be crying. And I'll be like, do you feel bad, Jude? And he'll be like, yeah, just like that. <laughs> you feel bad about that? Yeah. Say you're sorry. Sorry, sister. Go make her feel better. Sorry, sister. Okay. And then like two minutes later, he's like, ah! And it's like, bro, you have no clue how much you hurt her. Because if you had any semblance of a clue, it would make you feel bad enough to actually not want to do it anymore, right? So you don't understand the weight of your sin. 
Friends, oftentimes we're walking around not, not really dealing with our sin, not treating it seriously because we don't take the time to understand the weight of it and how it impacts us and how it impacts others. So the second step is mourning, understanding the weight of your sin, how serious it is. From there, we confess it, right? We're open and honest about what it means, right, for us to have sinned against God and against others. We confess to God what he already knows, our heart, right? He knows that what has motivated that moment, and he knows what has driven it, and he knows our, our sorrow and our embarrassment and our shame of it. He knows it already. Confess it to the one who already knows. And maybe confess it to someone that doesn't know, which means maybe some, some community, some people that are able to then express God's grace to you in a tangible way beyond just in your own mind. From there, when we look at Ezra 9 to 15, Ezra starts to ask for forgiveness, right? He starts to say, hey, this is all that we've done. This is all that's happened. And, and man, who could stand before you, right? Help us. Uh, ask, God, ask the God who sees you and knows you to forgive you. So, so we have self-examination, mourning, confession, and then we finally have an asking for forgiveness. And then we finally have something that I think is really important that we don't think about a lot, which is this fifth idea of restitution. The reality is that is what the, the community is doing in Ezra 10, 3 through 17. When they're getting rid of all the wives and all the children, they're doing it very poorly. But they're trying to figure out a way to make things right and to place boundaries that stop them from doing it again. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to, to make things right and set boundaries to prevent them, to stop them from doing it again. Friends, honestly, a lot of us are really familiar with these first four ideas of repentance. We got those down in spades. You're like, I know how to repent. I feel bad. I ask God for forgiveness. Bam. And you're, you've questioned over and over again in your life why repentance has no real fruit. And I think a lot of it, friend, is because this one doesn't happen. In relationships, we get into it with people, we think, I just need to say I'm sorry, and then we do the same thing over again, the person does the same thing over again, and we don't realize that in that, in that space of repenting and trying to say we're sorry to one another, no restitution has been made. No one's tried to make it right, no one's tried to put boundaries in place to stop the people from hurting one another, and as a result, because no restitution has been made, no real reconciliation has been made. But we're sitting there going, I'm sorry, but I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I see it. I know it. I've seen it. I'm sorry. Meanwhile, there's been no actual acts to say, hey, I'm going to stop this from happening. I'm going to take these steps. I'm going to make it right. And because this one is absent, because restitution is absent in our relationships, oftentimes reconciliation is absent because we don't make it right. And here's the thing. This is why this one is important because, friends, this one is the one that's most in line with pursuing the vision uh, that God has for our lives than these. Without this one, without doing what's right, without saying, I want to make things right. I want to do whatever in my power to make things right, to set things right, right? We don't actually live up to the vision that God has for us in a new creation. The vision that God has for us in a new being, in a new life, in a new world, we just say we're sorry for the old one. I'm sorry for the old one. I'm sorry for what has happened. But, but, but I, we never take the step to say, but let me help make a new one. That's what restitution is. These, this is what it looks like to, to, to actually repent, to self-examine, to mourn, to confess, to ask for forgiveness, and then to make restitution, to make it right, to make it right, friend. That's what repentance actually looks like. Now, here's the scary thing. Here's the scary thing. I'm starting to get all mucoso up here, so if someone wants to get me some type of little napkin, I'd appreciate it. 
Here's the scary thing. All this can be done outside of God's grace. Not that you're doing it outside of God graciously loving you, but that you're doing it outside of, thank you, give it up for my wife, being a great wife. <laughs> Pregnant and all, let me take care of my man. I appreciate you, girl. All this can be done outside of God's grace, meaning we can examine and, and mourn and confess and ask for forgiveness and even try to make things right, all without truly knowing that we're loved in the first place. Because here's the thing, God's grace doesn't start when he forgives you. God's grace starts when he loves you. But so many of us think God's grace only starts when he forgives you. We forget the fact that doing it in God's grace means that we, we work from the fact that, that we're loved. This is why Paul uses such an intense, intense wording in 2 Corinthians 7 when he talks about the fact that, hey, I now rejoice not because you were grieved, but because, you, because your grief led to repentance. For you were grieved as God willed so that you don't experience any loss from us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief uh, leads or produces death, right? What powerful language here. And here's the thing. I don't think that Paul is talking about two different experiences with grief. I don't think that's what's happening here. I think that he's talking about two different responses to grief, two different reactions to grief. That there's a grief that takes place in the context of us not knowing what it is to be loved by God. And there's a grief that takes place in the context of what it means to be loved by God. Why would he, why would he need to make this so clear? Why wouldn't just any response to grief be okay? Well, you feel bad. Examine how you feel bad. Try to make it right. That's the good thing to do. Why would Paul need to go through such lengths to use such a language to try and make us understand there are two different ways you can respond to this feeling of shame, this feeling of regret, this feeling of embarrassment, right? There's two different ways, and one leads to life, but friend, one leads to death. Why would he use such vivid language for such an idea? Why? Friend, because Paul understood that only working from grace not to grace produces life in light of our failures. Only working from grace, not to grace, produces life in light of our failures. When we fail, when we see failure in ourselves and we think to ourselves, I need to go and finally get to the place where God will love me, get to the place where God affirms me, get to the place where God accepts me. And in order to do that, I need to repent. And repentance is my means of getting back to God. Repentance is my means of being accepted by God. Repentance is my means of being affirmed by God. Then I have fundamentally lost life because now my hope lies not in God, it lies in repentance. It still somehow finds its way working back to finding my hope in me. Finding my hope in me. And let me tell you, friend, two things happened. Two things, I think, really, really specifically. There's probably more than this. But two things when I was preparing really caught my eye. The fact that when this happens, two things happen. The first one is, is discontentment. Or, or actually, the first one is self-righteousness. And the second one is discontentment. Right, the reality is if we think that we have repented our way into being affirmed by God, most of the time we turn into self-righteous people that walk around noticing how everyone else has not repented enough, has not changed enough, has not turned from sin to obedience to God, and now we walk around as judge, jury instead of compassionate, loving, grace giver, right? 
when we, when we build our hope on the fact that, hey, my repentance, my, my actual work of saying I'm sorry has gotten me to God, we turn into self-righteous people that walk around and go, man, I know that that person needs, I know what that person needs, I know that that person's not doing that, they just need to do this, they just need to do that. Guess what? You don't know what they need. Lovingly, I, I, I literally spend 40 hours a week thinking about what y'all need. I still don't know what a lot of y'all need, all right? Like, I'm being serious. It takes some divine discernment in order to be able to walk up to someone and be like, I think you need this. That's wild. You have to spend time with someone, understand someone, graciously understand their, their story, where they're at, in order for you to confidently come up to someone and be like, yo, you need to do this. Right? That's a space that, only, that rarely we get into because it takes a lot of hard work to get into it. But, but man, when we think that our repentance and our self-righteousness is, is what earns us that place, then we walk around doing it freely. Why? Because it's not about the work I've done with them. It's about the work I've done to, to repent. If that, chick, if that ticks the boxes, then I'm, I'm good. But the other thing is that it, it either produces self-righteousness or it produces discontentment. This idea that nothing's ever good enough, that I'm never good enough, that because I, I always am having to repent, I'm always suffering, I'm always struggling Right, nothing is good enough. I found myself with this really weird experience the other day because uh, my, my, my in-laws are in town and my wife was like, I want the house to be you know, a little nice. And so we, if y'all been to our house, y'all know that our bathroom has a lot, of, a lot of evidence we have children in our house. And I don't just mean by toys, I mean by the fact there's like little like rights, like little stuff on the wall and like little writing and X, Y, and Z. And in the bathroom, there's just straight up like this, these two massive holes where there used to be a, a toilet paper holder. And my son was just like, not anymore. And he just yanked that bad boy out of the wall. And so uh, I put it back in on studs so that my son would not be able to get it out. But then from there, right next to uh, the new placement for the, the toilet paper holder, there was just two big old holes. So I patched that up, right? Uh, and then I started going in with some touch-up paint and painting. And as I did, I started noticing every little place. And I started just getting everyone. And I'd look up and be like, there's another one. And 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 I started looking around. The more I looked around and the more I saw those, those nicks and those little marks, the more discontent I was. And the more anxious I started to feel. The more angry I started to become. The more frustrated I started to be. And I looked and said, man, there's another one. Nothing is good enough. Nothing is right. Nothing is white enough. How come, this, how come I didn't just do this right the first time? And all of a sudden I started getting frustrated at me. I started getting frustrated at my kids. I started getting frustrated at my wife. I started getting frustrated all around. All because I couldn't just look and be like, hey, man, this place is enough. My family loves this place. We host people in this place. People have found relationships in this place. People have felt love in this place. People have known what it is to be loved by God in this place. This place is enough. These little white marks aren't what make it valuable, right? It, it's the presence of God's love that makes this place valuable. But when we're discontent and we feel like nothing's ever enough, no community is ever enough. No, no sermon is ever enough. No, no, no repentance is ever enough. No, no step forward is ever enough. Discontentment starts to rattle us and we start to see everything through the lens that nothing is ever enough. And friend, that's not the life that God came here to give you. That's not the life that Jesus enters the story to provide. In fact, he, he starts to say things like, hey, right, where, where you're weak, I'm strong. Right, where, man, where, where you're not enough, I am enough. 
right? I've entered so that those who are struggling with anger can now find the peaceful man in me and walk out a peaceful identity in me, right? Come to me, right? All those who are struggling with, with perversion, that you could actually come to me and see the pure man and then from there live out your life as a pure man because of my work on the cross, right? there. Discontentment is, I think, one of the clearest indications that we're not walking in God's grace. We're walking according to our hope in ourselves somewhere. Because the, the grace of God, the good news says, you have enough. Not because you're perfect, but because I'm perfect. And I've given myself to you. That's the gospel. That God exchanges all of our imperfections for his perfection and then invites us to walk out life, not as a, a, a perfect being, but as a forgiven person, right? Being perfected by a perfect God. That's our story. Discontentment screams the opposite of that. It says you'll never be enough until you're perfect, right? And so, so it's dangerous, friend, to not, to not to, to even to repent outside of God's grace, outside of the good news of Jesus, because it leads us to self-righteousness and discontentment. And the only way, right, only working from grace, not to grace, brings life in light of our failures. Because what do we mean on the second part, right? Not, not not to grace, but, but rather from grace. It means that understanding your love, understanding that God sent his son into the world, not so that you would be condemned by him, but that you would be forgiven by him, that he would, he would take the cross so that in his grace and in his love and in his mercy, our identities could be found not in what we have failed to do, but in what he has succeeded to do. Not in the ways we have hurt people, but in the way he has healed people. Not in the way we have uh, pressed people down, but in the way he has built people up. His identity is now my identity, and my job is to now walk out what it means to look like Jesus, to love like Jesus, to be like Jesus. And when I actually mess up and I need to repent, I'm not doing anything beyond saying, hey, this is where I was, but I want to come to you. And by the power of your spirit and the power of your grace, I want to turn from sin and turn toward obedience to you, right? Repentance. And I'm going to make it right so that I can leave it looking the way you would have it look. Repentance. Repentance in light of God's grace. Hear me, friend. Repentance outside of God's grace I don't know, it could lead you to do some crazy things. Like, I don't know, sending away a bunch of women and their children. Let's just give you an example. It could lead you to doing things in, in unright ways. But, but here's the thing, only God's grace, there, there's, a, there's a clip up here with this, only God's grace, only the grace of God, to be perfect, takes our well-intentioned but prideful shame and turns it into redemptive repentance. Only God's grace does that. Only God's grace takes our well-intentioned but prideful shame and turns it into redemptive repentance. If you're doing any of this repentant, repentant work, right, to, to try to repent and to try and make things right and to try to do things on your own, you will, it will lead you inevitably into a place where your well-intentioned but prideful shame begin to hurt others, begin to hurt you. But when that shame and when that embarrassment is found in God's grace, it turns into redemptive repentance where you understand God loves me, I'm turning to him, and because I'm turning to him, I want to create a world that looks more like him, that is, that is loved more like him, and so I'm going to try to make things right by the grace of God at my back not in front of me, right? Friends, this is important. This is kind of my last line here, to be honest, and, and I want you to really grasp it because for a lot of us, we fail. You fail, not for a lot of us. Let me take that back for all of us. You fail. 
I fail frequently. And even that process of repentance is scary because every time I examine myself, I got something new that I could bring to the Lord if I was really looking hard enough. Every moment of feels like of every day, and it scares the mess out of me, and I know it scares the mess out of you. I know it intimidates you. It makes you feel like you're insufficient. It makes you feel like you're not enough. And when I stand up here using language about vision and changing our community and being packed with our community, some of us look and go, I don't even know how I could be a part of that because I know I ain't got enough. Friends, when it's in the context of God's grace, that he loves you, that the, that the gospel is that Jesus has come in to our narrative and taken our sin in exchange for his perfection so that in him you can be found, loved, affirmed, identify. When it's in context of that, man, that shame becomes a, a redemptive, repentant work that now can be, can be sent out to say, man, go make the world right where you failed to make it right the first time. But that only takes place in the context of actually knowing the depths of God's love the depths of God's forgiveness. It only takes place in knowing the depths of what Jesus has done and how he's working in you to create a new person, not based on what you've done, but what he's done. When it's in the context of God's grace, friend, your repentance is powerful. Only in the context of God's grace, though. So how do we grow? How do we grow in this? Last three points I'm gonna make, right? How do we grow in this kind of grace-filled repentance? How do we grow in this grace-filled repentance? That, that last slide. One, I want to encourage you, get more familiar with God's character and grace through means of grace or spiritual disciplines, right? Some of you guys know this language. There's a couple of books. One's called Literally Spiritual Disciplines. It's by, it starts with a D, Donald, Donald something. Um, and then there's a few more. Uh, the one I recently picked up that I have actually really enjoyed right off the bat has this, been this book called Sacred Rhythms. It's by a woman named Ruth Haley Barton. And she's just written some incredible and really practical, helpful things here that, that really the, the sub, you know, description of the book is arranging our lives for spiritual transformation. I was sold once I heard that and I was like, I'm a fan of that language. I like that. I like that. I picked it up, started reading it, and it was super duper helpful right away. I just got it this week and I've turned through a chunk of it already. Uh, and so if you have any questions about how you can get more familiar with these ideas, ooh, all right, uh, means of grace or spiritual disciplines, I want you to hit me up, right? I have several, several things I can put in your hand that speak in different languages, not like, they are in English, but they all use different like, like lingo uh, in order to get you more familiar with this. The second one is surround yourself with people calling you up, not calling you out. A lot of people like to call people out. A lot of us like to be, this is, again, this can get back to that discontentment piece if we ain't careful. A lot of people like the idea of saying, man, they don't do that right. You don't do this right. They don't do that well. She doesn't do that right. He doesn't do that well. He doesn't, a lot of calling out, right? But, but graceful to repentance is supported not with people calling you out, but calling you up. People that say, hey, man, I see this. God has something greater for you. He loves you, right? Like, man, like, like turn to Jesus, right? The cross is sufficient. He covers your sins, but he also invites in grace to, to, to transform you. Let's walk this out together. I'll help you be an accountability partner. I'll help you be, uh, you know, whatever the case is, whatever you need. Use me as accountability. Call me when you're struggling. Uh, I've told y'all several stories about some of my, my college group of guys, but them boys were wild when it came to accountability. Uh, get you a group of people. That, that will actually help build up uh, your spiritual walk by calling you up and not just calling you out. 
And, and that also leads to number three, that you have to stop hiding. Friend, if you want to actually live out this beautiful vision of, of repentance that I think the Bible gives us, where, where we are backed by God's grace, supported and buttressed by the work of Jesus, and therefore making an impact in the world around us, it's going to take you not hiding. Not hiding from God and not hiding from others. Rather, cultivate safe and secure spaces where you can be honest and vulnerable. I want you to notice that we, I mean, it's all bolded. But if I had not bolded it, I would have bolded it, underlined it, and italicized it, the word cultivate. Because I want to, to lovingly tell you something. That don't happen on accident. Safe places where you feel secure to be honest and vulnerable don't happen on accident. They happen with intentional, uh, proactive, and attentive work to build relationships where people feel secure together, they feel safe together. It doesn't happen, and the thing is, so many times we're like, I ain't got nowhere that I can actually be vulnerable about these things. And so many times as a pastor, I wanna be like, have you actually like spent time with anybody? Because I promise you, if you spend like 45 minutes at lunch with someone, like I promise you, you're gonna feel like much more connected to that person. And by the time you get three, four of these 45 minute times together, and someone's had like a bad week at work, all of a sudden, you're going to be like, yeah, I mean, I'm struggling with this. And you're going to feel safe and secure doing it. So you have to cultivate that, friend. You have to cultivate it by spending time with people, honestly developing relationships, spending time in a place where y'all are sharing life together. And before you know it, you're able to start inviting people into your life, not hiding, but rather being vulnerable and being honest and inviting people to support you in what it looks like to repent to actually experience God's grace, to experience his forgiveness, to work from that love, from that forgiveness, not to it, and from there begin to live out a life that begins to impact the world around us through repentance, through turning away from sin and to obedience to God. Like that's how that happens. If we can just start here, I think it's a powerful first step in getting, getting here. And, and hear me again, I wanna reiterate, last thing I'm gonna say, this is not what saves you. The beautiful grace of God to love you, to call you. I think I was saved far before the day I ever said, I'm sorry. When I was 19 years old, I was in church, I was high as a kite. My eyes were like the color of that red poster board back there. Uh, weeks before I said, I'm sorry, God said, I love you. And I was wrecked in a random chair at the back of an old church building, weeping week in, week out over the immense love of God. And I could tell inside, I love you too. That was the moment I got saved. That was the moment I knew like, man, I'm, I'm his, he's mine. It was when I started repenting that my life started changing, right? That's what this is about. We wanna live out this purpose of worshiping God with our whole lives. It's gonna take some repentance, friends. But I promise you if, you, if you do this, if you live out what it looks like to turn to God's grace, working from God's grace, not to it, right? And, 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 and actually saying, hey, I wanna do the work of turning from sin. Man, powerful things can happen in your life. Powerful things can happen in the world around you. We can actually, I believe this. Call me naive. I don't care. I believe that God can begin to see and birth out this new creation that all these people in the Bible seem to obsessively talk about, specifically Paul. I think that God wants to do that. And he does it in us. And he does it in others. 
And he does it through grace-filled repentance. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Um, that repentance is not doing something in response to what is bad. It's not doing something in response to failures. Repentance is sitting in the grace and mercy of God, of you. It's sitting in the new gift of life that we have in the Savior, dying in our place and inviting us into a new identity and a new way of life. And as we sit in that, as we walk in that, turning from sin and to you, thank you, Father. Help those of us that are feeling the weight of what it means to, to feel shame. Let the words that God loves them and that God trusts them and that God accepts them, God believes in them, right? Man, let that, let that affect our heart. At the same time, for those of us that are, that are wrestling with maybe some self-righteousness, let the reality that we are insufficient alone, that by ourselves, we cannot change ourselves. By ourselves, we cannot do uh, and make the world a more beautiful place. Yet, when we are nestled inside the truth of your love and your grace, that's exactly what you invite us into, by the work of your spirit and grace in our lives, rather than by our own work. Help us, Father, to live out what it means to repent, to turn to you, from sin to you, in a, in a way that glorifies you, blesses the world, and brings healing to us. I love you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.